a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, I guess it's becoming pretty clear now. If uh, you want to be a truth seeker in these times, you got to be willing to be a wrong thinker as well. You got to be willing to march to something other than the drum beat that uh, is being proffered by so much of the media blasting at us 24 7. And I'll admit, sometimes that can feel a little bit lonely, but uh, I want, I'm here to remind anybody who's sincere about looking for truth that falls outside of the, uh, what is it, three by five index card of approved opinion, as Tom Woods would put it. I'm here for you. Not that I have all the answers, but I uh, I spend my time and I use what resources I have at my disposal to try to find solid, credible, and principled information that gives you a better view of what's going on in the world as well as some, hopefully some encouragement as to what you and I can be doing about it. We're not helpless. We're not little children. We're not little sheep just waiting for someone to tell us, go this way, go that way. As free people, we get a say in what happens. And a lot of folks, unfortunately, have forgotten that. So I I appreciate you tuning in today. Let me see if I can make it worth your while. I want to start with something that's uh, just, it's kind of fun. I mean, I don't want to sound like uh, old man yells at cloud, you know, but uh, it's just fascinating to see how much times have changed. And I specifically want to share with you some headlines that you never would have seen just a few short years ago. This is just kind of an interesting little milepost in how far we have come or devolved, if you prefer. Um, I, I say this because I saw a headline the other day. I think it was from NPR yesterday. <clears throat> I think it was President Biden signed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, the, the most Orwellian title yet for any piece of federal legislation. Uh, the Respect for Marriage Act was signed, and, and it talked about the evolution of the president and the American public. And I thought, I think they misspelled devolution, because we're, we're not in ascendancy here. This is, you know, this is something, the, the, the rule of what goes up fast comes down fast, I think is probably going to come into play, probably within our lifetimes. But check out some of these headlines and tell me that uh, we aren't seeing remarkable, jaw-dropping changes happening right in front of our eyes. Here's one from The Atlantic. By the way, this is from Eric Utter. This is a piece he wrote for AmericanThinker.com. First headline, The People Cheering for Humanity's End. This is an article in The Atlantic. And Eric Utter says, They think the planet would be better off without us. Who would know? These people must be super fun at parties. By the way, he points out God did instruct us to go forth and multiply, but these people think the cosmos is better off without him, too. Small wonder. Here's another one. Canada has a shortage of grim reapers to meet demand for assisted suicide. Did you know there was a big demand for assisted suicide in Canada? Maybe that shouldn't be so surprising given Trudeau's policies. Here's one from MSN. In too deep, John Fetterman's wife claims swimming is very racist. No, that's a, that's really a headline. And, and to this, uh, Eric Cutter says, yeah, that's correct. Every time I go for a swim, I'm really trying to stick it to the bipox. you got to be kidding me. He goes, Mrs. Fetterman can go jump in a lake, except uh, that would be racist. Okay, how about this headline from Campus Reform? University Library asks transgender students to journal about their bathroom experiences. 
What? Eric asks, why is it that all edu- that educators at all levels want to talk about their students' most intimate body parts and bodily functions? He's got a point here. This would never have flown even a generation ago, and yet now it's becoming pretty normalized. Here's a headline from the College Fix. Former UCSD's professor gave all students A's and no homework to, quote, decolonize classroom. Eric Utter says, well, let's decolonize everything and never judge, critique, or grade anything. What a fantastic world that would create, except that nothing would exist, possibly including us, which might make, you know, the people cheering for humanity's end happy. With no more testing, verifying, pushback, etc., no one's feelings would get hurt. Of course, eventually no buildings would stand, no planes would fly, no surgeries or medical diagnoses would be performed correctly, but at least we wouldn't be so colonized. I don't know why, but for some reason that makes me think of the film Idiocracy. If you haven't seen it, it's probably worthwhile, but be advised. It's, it's, it is satire and there is some crude, crude humor, but boy, is it on target. All right, here is, here's a headline from The Blaze. Federal court systems to establish mentorship program that promotes a psychologically safe space for staff who self-identify within any minoritized group. <laughs> Say what? Here's another one from The Blaze. California City will send all adult residents, including non-U.S. citizens, $100 in taxpayer funds to donate to political candidates. Translation. We in the government want to send you other people's money so you'll be sure to vote for the candidates that will keep sending you other people's money. All right, here's another headline. This is from BBC News. Trans woman jailed for sex with 14-year-old girl. Oh, and she, in quotation marks, impregnated the 14-year-old girl. Eric Cutter says, are we tired of women raping and impregnating other women yet? How much longer will we keep playing this sick game? Here's a headline from The Federalist. Wisconsin Children's Hospital stacks chaplain roster with trans activists. I wonder how many of them are, quote, women. What could possibly go wrong? LifeSite News. Here's a headline. Republican senator claims survival of U.S. depends on codifying same-sex marriage. Yeah, beam me up, Scotty. There's no intelligent life here. Here's another one from LifeSite News. Trudeau threatens the province of Alberta over its Sovereignty Act, says all options are on the table. Wow, including perhaps the nuclear option? Or will the formerly black-faced monster just invade, freeze its accounts, seize its assets, take its NHL teams away? Canada, by the way, is really becoming a very openly authoritarian type of government, something you might want to keep an eye on. Here's an article from Front Page Mag. Priest advocates porn for overstressed clergy. Eric Utter says, well, it seems the priesthood isn't what it used to be. Now, all but two of these headlines were gleaned from just one day's worth of perusing the news. That's correct. Ten of the twelve were from reports on December 1st. Any one of them illustrates a profound change in society from not so long ago and portends potentially dire consequences. Taken together, he says, they're quite the snapshot of America and the West in general, circa 2022. None of these would have been thinkable in 1972 or 1982, probably not even in 2012 either. I guess his point is that the so-called progressives are winning the culture wars in a rout, but this doesn't look like progress to me, he says it looks like a harbinger of chaos and disaster. Okay, now that's, I know, that's, well, that's kind of a bummer, you know, to bring that up. I mean, I was, I was having fun laughing at these silly headlines, but... 
It's it's true. You're what you're seeing here is this is the documentation for those who are paying attention of a society that is definitely in decline. Now, if there is any good news in this, and I believe that there is, it's that the decline doesn't last forever. And I guess we could look to, you know, the look to the biblical example of Isaiah being sent to the people and to, to, telling Israel, you got to, you know, get it straight here and straighten up and you're going to re- wreck this thing. Knowing full well that the masses were going to ignore him and that uh, basically the, the masses were ready to fly it right into the ground. And that's what we see happening today. But there's a very important aspect to that story of Isaiah, and I, I'm referencing uh, Albert J. Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job, published, published back in the 1930s, which talks about a remnant to which Isaiah was speaking, to whom he was speaking. These are the people for whom truth is more important than anything else, including painful truth. And yes, it's only a tiny portion of the people out there. But basically, the Lord told Isaiah, that's who you're speaking to. That's who you're giving encouragement to. This is who you are feeding truth to because after the masses have wrecked everything, it's the remnant that will come forward and will rebuild. I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm putting too much on your shoulders here, but if you are, you know, if you're stepping outside of mainstream news sources, if you're stepping outside of, you know, mainstream podcast or broadcast thought, and that's how you've stumbled on this little program, I'd say there's a pretty good chance you're a part of that remnant. And the crazy thing about it is it feels very alone. I mean, you feel very alone to be in in that remnant. You can't look around you and take courage in numbers. Oh, look, man, I got a lot of people on my side. Because truthfully, you don't. But that doesn't matter because what you have on your side is something far more important, and that is truth, as well as the source of truth, all truth. So, I don't know, I've, I've taken kind of a circuitous route here, but uh, my, my message is, don't lose hope, don't lose heart. Watch those headlines and, and marvel as I do that, wow, we have really come a long way in a short time. But remember, things that go up quickly tend to come down quickly, And instead of obsessing over, oh, things suck, things are not the way that they used to be, maybe we should be focusing on being the kind of people who could be counted on to build what comes next. That's going to require some wisdom. That's going to require some courage. And I think like those who came before us, it's going to require a dependence upon divine providence. So where should our efforts best be spent? Probably in becoming that kind of people. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for listening in. I know there are many, many choices out there competing for your attention, and I know time is precious, which is why I try to get as much information packed into each show Monday through Friday that I can do. It's not that I want to tell you what to think, but I want to give you some decent food for thought that you can then take that information and run with it. This program is made possible by great sponsors like GarageDoorProServices.com. This is especially good news for my listeners who live in the St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona areas who need installation service or repair on their garage doors. 
Talk to my friends at Garage Door Pros. You can call them at 435-525-2773 or go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. You'll find all the information you need to get a hold of them as well as to see everything that they offer. Well, I have some favorite sources that I like to go to. I, in fact, I link to many of these on my, uh, on my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. I call them resources for wrong thinkers. One of my favorite sources is a, uh, an economics professor by the name of Alexander Salter. Especially I like him on monetary issues. Now, this may surprise you. There are times when I disagree with Alex. In fact, I, there are some things where I'm like, nah, I don't, want to th- I don't want to believe that. But he has been very consistent in his principles. In the places where, the places where we don't see eye to eye, I'm still willing to hear what he has to say because I believe he is one of the most informed people on monetary issues that I know of. So it's kind of reassuring to see him warning about the implementation of a central bank digital currency in the USA. And it makes me even happier to see him say, not now, not ever for this CBDC. This is his latest article on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. Alexander Salter says, Kevin Warsh, a former member of the Fed's Board of Governors, writes in defense of a central bank digital currency in the Wall Street Journal. He says Mr. Warsh believes we need a digital dollar to keep up with China, saying U.S. policymakers should heed the moment and respond with a strengthened form of the dollar in service to the national interest. Now, Alex says Mr. Warsh undoubtedly has the best of intentions, but following his advice would be disastrous. We should absolutely not implement a CBDC. Meeting the threat of an authoritarian rival by embracing perilous social control technologies is totally contrary to the American ethos. By all means, invest in, all, invest in improvements to the U.S. payment system, but replacing that system with a CBDC, which would give the government unprecedented control over financial transactions, that should be a non-starter. Now, to his credit, Mr. Wash recognizes the threats to financial privacy posed by a digital dollar. He clearly disfavors retail CBDCs, government payments processing for all households and firms. This is at odds with the American ethos of privacy from government intrusion, he writes. But Mr. Warsh continues, the specter of state surveillance of individual spending is dangerous. So Alexander says instead a digital dollar should be used exclusively for wholesale transactions, meaning financial institutions such as banks. A wholesale CBDC would more effectively intermediate uh, pay, intermediate payments among the government, financial firms, and foreign central banks. Settlements would be made faster, payments would be cheaper, cross-border transfers would be seamless, money creation would be more transparent, he claims. Now, Alexander Salter says, yeah, perhaps so, but regardless of whether these benefits are real, Mr. Warsh massively underestimates the cost. Does anyone seriously believe that a U.S. central bank digital currency that started as wholesale only would remain wholesale only? And once the inevitable wholesale retail boundary is crossed, how long would it take for CBDC use to become mandatory? Government programs have a strong built-in tendency for growth beyond their original intents and purposes. And he says we'd be wise to heed the words of Milton Friedman, nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. So just look at the government's record with monetary institutions and policy. The Federal Reserve was created to fight bank runs, not to conduct monetary policy. Defenders of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 explicitly forswore central banking, and yet, here we are. 
When President Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, it was supposed to be a temporary measure. In retrospect, it severed the final tenuous link of the dollar to gold. More recently, following the the 2008 crisis, rather, the Fed's interest on reserves policy in an environment of abundant bank reserves was perceived to be a temporary accommodation to extraordinary circumstances. Now it seems the floor system has replaced the corridor system permanently. Temporary monetary interventions inevitably result in a permanent degradation of monetary institutions. Wow, did he ever nail it. Now, Alexander Salter says last fall, he strongly recommended against a digital dollar in his own Wall Street Journal commentary. And he says, my conviction has only gotten stronger since then. We cannot permit a CBDC to gain a foothold in the U.S. The fact that the New York Fed, in conjunction with a handful of private banks, has implemented a pilot program with digital tokens is worrying enough. But he says, under no circumstances should we allow the government to roll out a CBDC. As he warned a year ago, all the benefits of this technology can be achieved through alternative and narrowly targeted policies. The costs, however, could be extreme. The best way to to prevent a financial panopticon is to not build it at all. By the way, if you're not familiar with the panopticon, this was uh, the brainchild of, I think it was Sir Jeremy Bentham, who lived back in the 1700s, who designed a, a, a form of prison in which essentially all the cells are built around a central tower, a guard tower, or a place basically where every cell could be seen into, and you could, there basically no one has any privacy whatsoever. The Panopticon allowed those who were serving as guards to be able to see into every single cell in the prison. Now we're talking more of a digital kind of prison. And I I know it probably sounds extreme. Brian, you're going off. Is your tinfoil hat too tight? It may, could be, it may well could be. I don't know. But the fact that, uh, you know, we have U.S. government officials saying, well, we got to do this in order to keep up with China. Well, you know, China's uh, welding people into their buildings and letting them burn to death in the name of their, their COVID strategy. Are you sure that we really want to be trying to keep up with China, at least in, in some respects? Because that's, that's not a form of keeping up that I would have any interest in. And with China instituting their social credit system where your ability to, to participate in society and to, to be a productive member of society is contingent on your willingness to toe the party line. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a very good fit for uh, freedom-minded Americans. I'm sure there are still some of us left. Now the question is, are there enough of us to put our foot down and say, nope, not going to do it? And this is to say nothing about those who believe in the Bible and read about the mark of the beast and how nobody will buy or sell without the permission of the beast. I mean, I'm not saying I know for sure this is what this is, you know, but gee, if, if that uh, prophecy by John, the beloved is to, uh, you know, is, if there's anything to it, I'd have to say this is a plausible way of what it might look like. I just don't want to be spied on. I don't want to. I don't want government to, to know and have access to every single dime that ever comes through my hands, so that it can tax it and take it away at will, or give it back, or make it conditioned on. Well, Brian, you've had enough red meat for one month. You know, none of your money will work if you try to spend it on these types of groceries, or your carbon footprint is large enough we can't sell you gas for the rest of the month, or for that matter, you said something that displeased those in power. 
Therefore, your money will not work or just has flat vanished. I know that sounds like a fantastic, you know, imaginary thing. Well, like they would ever do that. And then I think about the truckers up there in Canada earlier this year and the way that Trudeau's government went after them with the help of the financial institutions. Yeah, suddenly it doesn't seem so far-fetched. So I'm keeping my mind open for alternatives. And, and frankly, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I've got some wonderful listeners, by the way, who correspond with me. Bill, this is a shout out to you, uh, who regularly, you know, tell me what their thoughts and their concerns are. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, examining the possibilities. But let's just say the closer we move to a central bank digital currency, the more determined I am to uh, extricate myself from the system. I don't want to be a part of that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to lifesavingfood.com, one of the sponsors of The Brian Hyde Show. You can check him out at my website. There's a link that'll take you right to him. Go to thebrianhydeshow.com, or you can just type in lifesavingfood.com. All right, let's let's talk about totalitarianism. I know this gets some people a little bit uncomfortable. What are you trying to say? In no way can we look around and say that the United States has become a totalitarian country. And I guess I need to make this distinction. Asserting that totalitarianism exists in America isn't the same thing as saying that, well, we've gone full totalitarian. I mean, we're not all goose-stepping around and singing the national anthem every time, you know, someone stands up. But uh, John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a wonderful article with 14 signs of totalitarianism. And I want to share these with you just on the off chance that you might recognize, hey, some of these sound awfully familiar. John says, we all know the cons of Twitter, but he says one of the pros is discovering new and interesting people. In fact, he says, one of my new favorite follows is Benjamin Carlson, a public relations guru and former editor at The Atlantic. He says, Carlson's tweets are among the best you'll find on Twitter, and he clearly has a keen understanding of the intersections between media and government, power and propaganda, both current and historically. John says, one of Benjamin's tweets recently caught his eye, and he says, I'm sharing an adaptation of it below. So here, here are the 14 points about uh, totalitarianism, 14 signs of, of what it means. Number one, dissent is equated to violence. Number two, media is controlled. Number three, the legal system is co-opted by the state. Number four, power is exerted to quash dissent. Number five, state police protect the regime, not the people. Number six, rights, financial, legal, and civil are contingent on compliance. Number seven, mass conformity of beliefs and behaviors is demanded. Number eight, power is concentrated in an inner ring of elite institutions and people. Number nine, semi-organized violence is permitted in some cases. (coughs) BLM, (coughs) sorry. Ah. Number 10, propaganda targets enemies of the state regime. Number 11, entire classes are singled out for persecution. Number 12, extra-legal actions are condoned against internal regime opponents. Number 13, harsh legal enforcement against unfavored classes. 
January 6th protesters, anybody? And number 14, private and public levers of power are used to enforce adherence to state dogmas. Now, that list is troubling, says John Miltimore. At the very least, some of these techniques are playing out before our eyes. Now, that's not to say the U.S. is a totalitarian state, however. He says there are many definitions of totalitarianism, and he says, I don't believe one can seriously argue that the United States has arrived there, but authoritarianism is certainly in the air, and it emanates most strongly from our nation's capital. He says, while both the political right and the political left accuse each other of harboring tyrannical ambitions, the philosopher Karl Popper offered a clue as to when a legitimate government crosses the line and becomes a tyrannical one. Popper wrote, you can choose whatever name you like for the two types of government. I personally call the type of government which can be removed without violence, democracy, and the other, tyranny. Now, Popper's quote is an important reminder. The people ultimately have the right to choose their government. In his seminal Two Treatises of Government, John Locke carved out what would become the foundation of America's founding philosophy, as Fees Dan Sanchez recently explained. Sanchez wrote, Equality in the original sense, not of equal abilities or equal wealth, but of non-subjugation. Inalienable rights, not to government entitlements, but to life, liberty, and property. Democracy in the original sense, not of mere majoritarian voting, but of popular sovereignty. The idea that governments should not be masters, but servants of the people. Consent of the governed. The idea that governments can only legitimately govern by the consent of the governed. In other words, the sovereign people. Limited government. The idea that the sole purpose and, pro and proper scope of legitimate government is only to secure the rights of the people. And right of revolution. The idea that any government that oversteps its limits and tramples the very rights it was charged with securing is a tyranny, and that the people have the right to resist, alter, and even abolish tyrannical governments. John Miltimore says, as the state drifts further and further from its moral purpose, it becomes more and more important to understand the rights of man and the limits of government. I agree with him wholeheartedly. And I understand, you know, by just saying this, well, that sounds so radical. That sounds like something a far-right extremist would probably say. I know that's kind of a fame, that's a favorite epithet for, you know, those who are, are trying to assume control over as many people as possible. And if it hurts your feelings to be called names, I don't know what to tell you. You know, it's the, that's the price of standing up. If you decide that you are going to stand for what is true or you're going to stand for your freedoms and not just be bossed around by anybody who has a control complex, you're going to be abused. You're going to have to, you're going to be made to suffer for challenging the systems that want to rule our lives. My best advice is embrace it. Take it as a compliment. It doesn't happen for people who are having no impact. People who aren't making waves, people who pose no meaningful threat to the system, and I'm talking primarily, you know, philosophically, they're left alone. They're not a problem. But anyone who gets over the target, anyone who gets a little too close to the truth, oh boy, they're throwing everything they can at them. I worry for Elon Musk, actually. In fact, this is probably a good way to segue or a good place to segue into um, what Elon Musk is doing. I see what started as a trickle of inconvenient facts is quickly becoming a torrent of truth, revealing the depravity of our ruling class. 
I've got a great article here from Julie Kelly from American Greatness about uh, about Elon Musk and and what can he do. In fact, it's titled "Now What." <laughs> she says, let's hope House Republicans can catch a really potent case of the courage Elon Musk is demonstrating in exposing the collusion between big tech and the deep state. And soon. I agree. This needs to happen sooner than later. Julie Kelly says the release of the Twitter files, for the most part, confirms what Donald Trump and his supporters knew in 2020. Big tech drastically suppressed information damaging to Joe Biden namely his son's oversee financial dealings and the Democratic Party's plans to ensure Biden's victory with an unprecedented flood of mail-in ballots before Election Day. The series of posts by independent journalists Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, and Barry Weiss reveal internal communications between top executives as they contorted company policy on the fly to accommodate the Democrats' political motives. Taibbi kicked off the party December 2nd with a series of tweets detailing how Twitter banned the New York Post reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop and continued to defend the move even after some company honchos admitted it was indefensible. One former employee said by this point everyone knew this was effed, but the response was essentially to err on the side of continuing to err, Taibbi wrote while posting screenshots of chat messages between decision makers. Weiss followed up by outlining Twitter's shadow banning, a practice that former CEO Jack Dorsey repeatedly denied, aimed at conservative influencers such as Dan Bongino and Charlie Kirk in 2020. This built up to a fever pitch that climaxed on January 6, 2021, when a four-hour disturbance finally gave Twitter and other social media behemoths the excuse they'd been hoping for to fulfill big tech's dream of permanently deplatforming the president. The bulk of the internal debate leading to Trump's ban took place in those three January days, referring to January 6th, 7th, and 8th, the day Trump was banned. However, the intellectual framework was laid in the months preceding the Capitol riots. The pressure campaign to boot Trump, Schellenberger further disclosed, came from both internal and external forces, including First Lady Michelle Obama, tech journalist Kara Swisher, the American Defamation League, or the Anti-Defamation League, rather, High Tech VC, and Chris Saka. Members of Twitter's scaled enforcement team employees tasked with excavating any policy nugget to rationalize the pending ban viewed Trump as the leader of a terrorist group responsible for the violence and deaths comparable to the Christchurch shooter or Hitler, one internal post read on January 8th. A few hours later, Twitter announced the decision to suspend Trump's account permanently. Twitter employees cheered. At least 70,000 Trump-supporting accounts were also purged in the days following. Now, while outrageous and clearly hostile to the spirit of political free speech in America, the question of whether the company engaged in in illegal conduct remains an open one. Corporations are forbidden from directly donating to political campaigns. By quashing Hunter Biden laptop coverage as millions of Americans were voting for president, big tech essentially contributed millions, perhaps more, hundreds of millions, perhaps more, in in-kind public relations services to the Biden campaign and the Democratic National Committee. That does seem a little problematic. Kind of sucks the wind out of the sails, too, of those who say, what, everything was above board, there was nothing wrong, there was no manipulation, there was no fraud. No, there may have actually been something a little bit worse. And I guess we're going to see how it plays out. We'll come back to this article, just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I want to continue on with this article from Julie Kelly. Again, she is one of the she is one of those trusted sources who has been principled and consistent in her coverage and right. This is the the best part. She's been right in her coverage, especially of the ev- events of January 6th. And she's rightly called out the, the January 6th committee, the the uh, politicians, the media who have uh, conflated, well, what took place there was nothing less than an insurrection and a coup and attempt to overthrow the country. When it was nothing of the sort. In fact, more and more, it's looking like it was a protest which morphed into a false flag or actually was co-opted by a false flag event and then used to weaponize the government at every level against roughly half the voters in this country. But, of course, this is still playing out. So I want to go back to her article, though, about, you know, now that we are learning through the Twitter files how much big government officials and campaigners colluded with big tech. What now? She says the far more egregious aspect and the one with greater legal standing in terms of potential criminality are revelations that the FBI engaged with big tech executives on a routine basis to do the Biden family's bidding in advance of the bombshell coverage in the New York Post and elsewhere. We'll show you what hasn't been revealed. The erosion of standards within the company in months before January 6th. Decisions by high-ranking executives to violate their own policies and more against the backdrop of ongoing documented interaction with federal agencies. This is what Matt Taibbi wrote back on December 9th. This post about the Hunter Biden laptop situation shows that Twitter's former safety chief, Yoel Roth, not only met weekly with the FBI and Department of Homeland Security, but with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, or DNI, referring to the government's demand that social media companies enforce hacked material policies as a ruse to remove any content related to the laptop. Now, Julie Kelly's saying the Republican National Committee should pursue legal action for the unlawful campaign contributions made by big tech to the Biden presidential campaign, and it might not hurt to sue the Biden campaign for failing to report large corporate donations, too. Also, the unfounded claims made by FBI Director Christopher Wray in the fall of 2020 that maligned foreign actors planned to damage the Democratic nominee for president again served only to buttress the agency's efforts to bury the laptop story. Remember, all that? Oh, it was a Russian disinformation campaign. So it was 2016 on steroids, says Julie Kelly. Baseless warnings of foreign election interference promoted by a hyperpartisan national security apparatus to undermine Trump's campaign. The result was a wide-ranging conspiracy to oust the sitting president of the United States, considered an enemy of the same national security apparatus, by protecting his opponent, a longtime ally in a tight election. Further, thanks to the civil lawsuit filed by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt and Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry, more evidence of just how the two interests collaborated before the 2020 election is coming to light. The FBI didn't just encourage big tech companies to restrict access to the laptop reporting, but subtly threatened to pursue legal action if they didn't. And those involved knew what they were doing was wrong. That's why Elvis Chen, one of the Bureau's conduits to Silicon Valley, admitted many conversations were conducted on Signal, an encrypted chat application which allows for disappearing messages. 
Only the signal information from the 2020 San Francisco command post was saved, Chan told investigators during his court-ordered deposition. Well, isn't that convenient? Chan, in addition to his routine contact with Twitter, also held meetings with executives at Facebook, Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, Wikimedia Foundation, and Reddit. So Julie Kelly asks, what now? House Republicans could do nothing else but investigate one corrupt government scandal after another for the next two years. The struggle is prioritizing the many inquiries incoming House committee chairmen have promised to pursue. But this emerging scandal, however, must be at the top of the list. Republicans must request and receive all records from the FBI, Department of Justice, and the Office of Director of National Intelligence related to interactions with big tech, the Biden campaign, and Democratic Party leaders. The inquiry should begin with departing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, whose San Francisco district includes many large technology companies, in order to unearth the evidence of the conspiracy. Officials like Chan and his supervisors must testify publicly so the American people can watch them squirm, investigate the possibility of perjury charges against Jack Dorsey and others who testified under oath that social media platforms applied an even hand in 2020. And statewide GOP officials should comb through every state law to do what Democrats continue to do with a vengeance and with great success, find any arcane, ancient statute to sue or prosecute the people responsible. She says the Republican National Committee should pursue legal action for the campaign contributions made by big tech to the Biden presidential campaign. And it may not hurt to sue the Biden campaign for failing to report large corporate donations, too. Ditto for Republican candidates and elected officials deplatformed or suppressed in the 2020 and 2022 elections. She says Elon Musk's one-man crusade to expose the inner workings of the technology giant he now owns is admirable at a time when the level of courage needed to confront the massive beast of government, Silicon Valley, the Biden regime, and the traditional media is frighteningly low. But she says courage, as Billy Graham once said, is contagious. Let's, host, let's hope that House Republicans can catch a really potent case of it, and soon. This is why I like Julie Kelly. She is just right on target. Isn't it interesting, too? I just noticed this the other day. I, one of my kids was watching a, a show, I think, on Hulu, and I saw something advertised. There was three different FBI shows just on CBS. And, I, you know, this is all, you know, hey, pretty people with guns running around acting all tactical and solving amazing crimes. And I thought, boy, there, there really is a lot of propaganda trying to prop up our, our Stasi as, you know, they are the heroes. And, and isn't that interesting? How our, how our popular entertainment tends to lionize the FBI when, in fact, it's one of the institutions that seems to be working the hardest against the American people. Crazy stuff. All right, let's end on some good news here. I know there's a lot of talk about toxic masculinity, but I want to share with you a quick heroic story about a Marine veteran by the name of Terry Bagley, a 70-year-old father of five. He does housekeeping at a Veterans Affair, a Veteran Affairs Hospital. He was walking to buy items for Thanksgiving in the Pigtown area of Baltimore, Maryland, just on the Tuesday afternoon just before the holiday. On his way to the store, a row home on the block exploded, likely from a ruptured gas line. Now, Bagley wasted no time hurrying to the rescue of anyone who might be trapped inside the burning building. Firefighters later found him in the rubble. He was in critical condition, placed in a medically induced coma. 
suffering from a broken pelvis, broken femur, and his hand you know, was also injured. They'll all require surgery. But a 16-year-old girl and a 48-year-old woman inside the home survived in stable condition. And Mark Tapson, sharing this article on intellectualtakeout.org, says, you know, amid the usual litany of disheartening news items highlighting the worst of human behavior, mass shootings, wartime atrocities, and acts of random pointless violence, Terry Bagley's story is one that shines a spotlight on the best of what we're capable of. And in particular, there's a quote from his daughter that I think was really revealing. His daughter, Eris Bagley, told Baltimore's 11 News, he thought nothing about his own life to save two women that he did not know. Questioned about uh, why her father entered the burning home, she replied, because he's a Marine. She said, my dad endured polio as a child. He endured the thing with the Camp Lejeune toxic water and also served in the Vietnam War. She says he was heroic, but I wish he didn't do it because now I'm scared that I'm about to lose him. But I'm glad he did it to save people. Now, his son, Terry Bagley Jr., has told reporters, his heroic behavior is nothing new. I've always seen this, and I think every child should look up to their father. Every child should be proud of their father, and I'm very proud of what he did. But I'm also scared as well, and I've got to be honest with that. But I'm just praying to my God, and I believe in my God, and I want my father to get better. And I just want his story to be out there, that a 70-year-old man put his life on the line to save two people. Why does that matter, by the way? 70-year-old man put his life on the line to save two people. Look, I'm not quite 70 years old. I'm still, still a ways off. But uh, I think people would consider an understanding. Some people say, well, you know, he's older. He's elderly. He, why should he risk his life running in there to help him? But he did it. He exhibited a heroic degree of selfless courage that's the hallmark of a cultural virtue among younger generations today that just don't understand what chivalry means. It's kind of the warrior code, but it's also, this is, this is what masculinity requires of men. The willingness to, to step up when you are needed and, and, and can be counted on to, to step up when you're needed. Anyway, I've got a link to the story. I hope you'll check it out. Um, I hope he has a speedy recovery. That truly is a heroic thing that he did. And isn't it interesting with no no thought about himself? You know, he just he sprang into action. Maybe that was his training. I believe it was training combined with something very decent in his heart that prompted the response that sent this 70-year-old Marine into a burning building to try to help the people inside. I'm sure there's something we could draw from that if we look, you know, closely enough. Thanks again for tuning into the show. Please subscribe to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.